Welcome to the Living by Faith podcast. My name is Josh DeGroat, and this is episode number three. Thanks for checking this out. This is a podcast where we look at current news and events, theology, practical issues, and a bit of history from the perspective of the Christian's life of faith in Christ. I hope you find it helpful, informative, and encouraging. Let's get started. I want to take a turn down a road today in our discussion of life in America in the era of COVID-19. We are now weeks into the reordering of American life due to the pandemic known as COVID-19. And one thing is becoming more and more clear. Our lives are fundamentally being reordered. Millions of Americans are out of work with no end in sight. Children are out of school with no end in sight. They're now being homeschooled. Traveling is halted. Businesses are shut down. Places of worship are being restricted to virtual gatherings and meetings. And families essentially are under near entire quarantine. This is the way it is in most states. And all of this is in an effort to save lives, we are told, which sounds great. Okay, let's save lives. I just have one burning question. And I suppose I'm getting on my soapbox here, but so be it. Here's the question I have. Why on earth are abortion clinics still open? Why are they considered essential businesses? When non-essential surgeries and medical procedures are being sidelined until a later date, and some hospital workers are being temporarily laid off because there's not enough for them to do, why is an abortion considered an essential medical procedure? I thought the point was to save lives, and clearly abortion does not save lives. In fact, abortion takes lives to the tune of 60 million in the U.S. alone since 1973. Now, full disclosure, I think all abortion clinics should be shut down like shut down yesterday and never reopened under any circumstances. I think abortion is an absolute abomination. So there, that's where I stand on the issue of abortion. But the fact that they are seen as essential in a time when a pandemic is sweeping, supposedly our country and the world, shows the utter incoherency of a secular worldview, a worldview that takes Christ out of the center and If he's in it at all, he's just on the margins, but more than likely, in a secular worldview, he is nowhere in sight. Here's the logic of many. We must do everything we can to save lives from coronavirus. At the same time, we must do everything we can to fight for the right to continue to take lives by means of abortion. Think about this. In the last four to six weeks, there have been about 28,500 deaths by coronavirus. No, now, this is assuming that the numbers are accurate. Of course, there's been some discrepancy as to whether all the deaths were caused by coronavirus or simply or people simply died with coronavirus, which is there is a difference there. So, but let's just say 28,500 deaths by coronavirus. We'll just we'll grant that large number, which is terrible. 28,500 deaths in the last four to six weeks is terrible. But consider this. In the same time, there have been roughly 80,000 to 120,000 abortions. 
80 to 120,000 baby boys or and baby girls violently dismembered in the place they should be the safest, namely their mother's womb. And this is legal in our country. And not only is it legal, by those in power, it is viewed as essential, an essential service by many in power, not all, but by many in power. But this is where it's important for us as Christians to remember that whoever defines the terms of words controls the narrative and usually wins the debate. And this is on any issue. And abortion advocates have done a masterful job at defining the terms of the debate. They have convinced a large portion of the public that access to abortion is a matter of vital women's health care. And to be against abortion is to be against women receiving good health care. At least that's what we're told. Of course, as Christians, we do not have the luxury of falling prey to such nonsense. And it is nonsense. We must say about abortion what God says about it. It is violence. It is murder. God hates it. Proverbs 6.17 says, God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. Every person at every stage of development is made in the image of God, knit together in his or her mother's womb, knit together by the living God. And so the ending of life by means of abortion is the intentional, gruesome killing of an image bearer of God. It is a sin against the baby who's killed. It is a sin even more against the God who knit that baby in his mother's, his or her mother's womb in his own image. And abortion is being designated as an essential service, while at the same time, worship gatherings of Christians are not. Let that sink in. God is not mocked. We must pray that God would have mercy on us as a nation and grant deep repentance. The next section is what I call the catechesis section. For centuries, Christians gave themselves to the practice of learning the doctrines of the Christian faith by way of a catechism. Churches did this. Parents did this with their children. It was a great way to learn the basics of our faith. The word catechesis simply means to teach orally or to instruct by word of mouth. This practice, I believe, would would benefit us so much in our day. We live in a day where there's so much confusion about truth and when even in the church there's so much ignorance about the Christian faith. Good, healthy doctrine is constantly emphasized in the New Testament, so a catechism goes a long way in helping to promote and instill good doctrine. So I'm making my way through a modern catechism called the New City Catechism. It takes, it takes the form of 52 questions and answers with scripture, so there's one for each week. This is a catechism you could buy if you want to buy a book, or you can just download the app for free, and I would, deep, I would encourage you to do so. If you download the app, it's, re- it's really slick. You can download it to your iPhone or, or Android, Android device, and, and it has all the questions and answers. It also has commentary and prayers for each question and answer. And it has shorter and longer answers. So if you want to go through this with your kids, you, you, and if they're younger kids, they can memorize the short answers. 
So we are on question and answer number three. Question three is, how many persons are there in God? Answer, there are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. This goes to the nature and character of God as triune, or the triunity of God, or the truth of the Trinity. There is one God and three co-equal, co-existent persons. The Father is not the Son, who is not the Spirit, and so forth. And yet, they are one in essence. Of course, the truth of the Trinity is a great mystery, and therefore, We should never go beyond what the scriptures teach. We should stick to what the Bible says and not try to extrapolate beyond what it does say. Now, of course, you won't find the word Trinity or triune in the Bible. If you go to a concordance and look for those words, you will look in vain. You won't find them. But reading through the scriptures, Christians for centuries have understood the truth of the Trinity by deduction. Let me explain. The Bible makes the claim over and over again that God is one. There is one God. There's one God, not three and not a hundred and not a thousand. There's one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one God. But then there are texts that say the Father is God. And I encourage you to look up these passages. I'm not going to read them all right now. But there's several passages that say the Father's God. For instance, Titus 1, verse 2. Others that claim that Jesus is God, later in the book of Titus, in chapter 2, verse 13. And others that claim the Holy Spirit is God. For instance, Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Now, some have then made the error by saying, well, yes, Of course, that is just the one God manifesting himself in different modes. He manifests himself as the Father in certain instances and as the Son in others and as the Spirit in others. But this is the error of modalism, that God is one, one, there's one God, and there's only one person who manifests himself in different modes. But that doesn't work. Because there are times we see all three persons or multiple persons in the same text, and we see them interacting with one another. For instance, at the baptism of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, we see Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. He comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and we hear the Father giving his words of affirmation. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Another example is Jesus praying in John 17, where he's clearly addressing the Father. But if there's only one person in different modes, who is Jesus talking to, himself? Well, of course not. He's praying to the Father, a unique person in the Godhead. In a day where there is a big emphasis on being Christ-centered and gospel-centered, we need to remember the centrality of the Trinity in the Christian faith. The Christian faith is certainly Christ-centered and gospel-centered. We we exalt in the cross. We exalt in the finished work of Christ. But even more fundamentally, and I would suggest more beautifully, the Christian faith is Trinitarian. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in harmony to redeem sinners. 
one great example of this in the in the New Testament is Galatians chapter six, excuse me, Galatians chapter four, verses four to six, where it says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so we see the Father sending the Son. We see the Son coming and accomplishing our redemption. And we see the Father sending the Spirit into our hearts, applying the finished work of Jesus to us. This leads to the scripture for this question and answer, which is a wonderful and beautiful Trinitarian benediction or blessing. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So how many persons are there in God? There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. In our history section, I want to talk about an an important early church council and a key historical figure. This church council is often considered the first ecumenical council. It's the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. This is the council from which the Nicene Creed came. The emperor at the time, Constantine, brought bishops and leaders in the church from all over the Roman Empire to Nicaea. And he brought them together to decide what to do with the Arians and the teachings of Arius, their leader. Arius had led a revolt against the orthodox truth of the Trinity and was leading many away from the truth. Arius taught that Jesus was an exalted person, but that he was not truly God, that he was a created being. The most ardent defender of the Trinitarian position at the the council, though he was not an author of the creed, was a man named Athanasius. The words of the Nicene Creed have stood now for almost 1,700 years as a standard of the true Orthodox Christian faith. In it, we hear the one God, three-person truth loud and clear. Here's some excerpts from the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. So you see clearly this understanding that there's one God, and yet three persons, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as we read this, there should every true Christian should give a hearty amen. Well, the Council of Nicaea was important, but it did not end the battle with the Arians. That fight would continue, and Athanasius would be the tip of the spear in the fight for the truth. Athanasius was exiled many times, often on the run for his life, as he was running away from the Arians as they sought to assassinate him. Athanasius stood against the onslaught of the Arian error almost alone. 
At one time, a friend said to Athanasius, Athanasius, the whole world is against you. And it may have seemed like it. I mean, it seemed like almost the entire church was falling into this error of Arianism. But Athanasius responded with this powerful statement. He said, well then, Athanasius is against the world. And those words ended up on Athanasius's tombstone. The, this statement ended up on the tombstone of Athanasius. Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. What a great reminder for us that we live in a world where we will have to fight for the truth. And sometimes it will seem like we're on the losing side. But we are not. God's truth will prevail. Remember the words of God through Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 40 verse 8 when he says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Thanks again for listening to the Living by Faith podcast. If you found it helpful, please subscribe, like, and share with your friends. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all.